0: Greekish history takes a deep dive into stranger than fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In season one, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Ten Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 Tencent Beer Night Odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 Ten-Set Beer Night Riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Previously on Heading for Home, the game actually began. Pitchers swapped wives, home runs and other explosions, bouncing balls, and boos. Heading into the top of the fourth inning, The Indians pitcher warming up on the mound was not Fritz Peterson. Indians manager Ken Aspermani clearly hadn't liked what he had seen out of Peterson and was giving the hook after only three innings and two runs allowed. Veteran right-hander Dick Bosman with an elevated ERA of 6.89 was his replacement. Peterson hadn't looked sharp. The first three Rangers up in the inning were all righties and Bosman needed the work, having pitched only five times on the season. A quiet and unassuming guy, Aspermani, 42, was in his third season as Indians manager after spending a solid but uneventful seven seasons in the majors as a second baseman and third baseman with a number of clubs. Rangers cleanup hitter Jeff Burrows stepped in to start the fourth. Bosman carved him up quickly and struck him out. Up next was D.H. Tom Greve. Like in the second inning, Greve homered, this time to right, giving the Rangers a 3 to nothing lead. A completely naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base, stealing the thunder from Greaves' second homer. Many cringed knowingly at the road burn a stunt like that would inflict on exposed, tender flesh. But all admired his balls. This led to another convergence of authorities on the field. But the lumbering security guards and ushers were no match for the bearskin bandit, who was wily and elusive, his junk flopping to and fro with every knee lift then, like some sort of interdimensional being, the streaker zigged, zagged, and disappeared into the stands. Jim Fergosi climbed into the right-handed batter's box with one out and the Rangers leading 3-0. After a battle with Bosman, Fergosi popped out to Blanco in foul territory near first for the second out. Shortstop Toby Hera then lashed a liner into left field. Hera slid into second with his ninth double of the season, recapitulating the efforts of the streaker, but with pants. Hera danced off second as Leo Cardenas came up to bat with a game at a critical juncture. With two outs, Hera would be running on contact. If he scored, the Rangers would take a commanding 4-0 lead. But Cardenas hit one off the end of the bat and popped out to Blanco at first base to end the threat. The crowd sighed in relief, but then grumbled with disapproval at the overall state of affairs. A supposed revenge game that the tribe trailed 3-0 after three and a half meek and ineffectual innings. The spectators weren't so much interested in appreciating the nuances of a beautiful game played at the highest level as they were in seeing the Indians wreak righteous destruction upon an evil opponent, like Jesus kicking the money changers out of the temple, but with spiky shoes, thunderous explosions... And naked people. Of course, there were legitimate Indians fans in attendance who were dialed into the bigger picture. A team just one game under 500, at 24 and 25, and only two and a half games behind the first-place Red Sox. But there was a large, ham-fisted component in the crowd becoming unmoored on rivers of beer that lusted after the primordial release of a blood sacrifice. And they had a literal tribal beat, provided by superfan John Adams and his big bass drum in the bleachers to synchronize their cause. Adams beat the drum at virtually every Indians home game from 1973 until COVID protocols struck in 2020, almost 3,600 games. Fergie Jenkins stalked to the mound to pitch the bottom of the fourth inning. The crowd pleaded, cajoled, demanded that the Indian second baseman, Jack Brohammer, begin the onslaught. On a fastball, Brohammer clubbed a regal blast to center that went back, back, back. Only to be corralled by center fielder Tovar on the warning track. Leron Lee came next to the plate with the tribe's lone hit thus far in the game. He lined a vicious low drive toward the pitcher's mound that Jenkins didn't have time to grab. The ball caromed off his kneecap with a sickening smack and rolled its way toward short as Lee streaked across first base with his second infield single of the game. Someone in the upper deck began chanting. The contagion spread like wildfire across the upper deck, down to the bleachers in left field, and finally across the lower deck as the entire stadium thrummed with hope and bloodlust. With one out and Laurent Lee on first, Charlie Spikes came up for the second time, having flied to right to end the first inning. This time he fared much better, sharply singling to right, sending Lee scrambling around to third base. The Tribe finally had something going and the wavering attention of the fans returned to the game. Indians DH Oscar Gamble came up with a big bat, the biggest afro in the majors, and a chance to cut into the Rangers 3-0 lead with one out and runners on first and third. Gamble singled up the middle, scoring Lee and sending spikes all the way to third, The stadium exploded in tumultuous cheers, sounding more like a World Series crowd than a Tuesday night gathering in early June. With a run on the board, the fans' mood shifted from sullen and chippy to aggressive and taunting. Fiery verbal jabs erupted like little volcanoes of vitriol. But this was also time for hope. The Indians had runners on first and third with only one out and the dangerous George Hendrick stepping into the box. Hendrick dramatically worked the count to three and two before grounding into a 4 6 3 double play to end the Indians' short lived rally and the fourth inning. Four innings into the big revenge game, and the tribe hadn't been particularly vengeful. They were down three to one. But things could be worse, and there was always more beer, practically free, to be drunk, as well as insults and random objects to be hurled at the opponent. Dick Bosman ascended to the mound for the top of the fifth. Jim Sundberg, who had doubled to center his last time up, strolled into the batter's box. Sunberg grounded tamely to Lowenstein at third, who scooped it up nicely and made an accurate throw to Blanco at first for the out. Leadoff off man Cesar Tovar, who had doubled Sunberg home his last time up, again sent a fly ball to center. But this time his gliding counterpart, George Hendrick, made the catch for the second out. Pesky Lenny Randall, now batting left-handed against the righty Bosman, chipped a little pop fly off the end of the bat to Lowenstein in foul territory for the third out. Nice work by Bosman, and time for the Tribe to swing the bats again with the score still 3-1. Halfway through the fifth inning, also the halfway point of the game. Billy Martin made some maneuvers, inserting lefty rookie phenom Mike Hargrove hitting an eye-popping 358 at first base. Part of the reason Hargrove was hitting so well was that Martin protected him against the better left-handed pitchers, which is why he hadn't started the game against Peterson. For all of Billy Martin's issues, namely anger and alcohol, he was a very successful, even beloved manager and usually made the right moves to bring out the best in his players. Martin, in his first full season managing the Rangers, had the team playing 500 ball after they had lost 105 games in 1973 and 100 games in 72. The franchise, as the Washington Senators from 61 to 71, and then as the Texas Rangers, had only finished above 500 once. Ever. Ever. As the Rangers took the field and Fergie Jenkins started his warm ups for the bottom of the fifth, fans along the first base line noticed that Hargrove had entered the game defensively and needed to be properly welcomed to the evening's festivities. So they threw things at him. Welcome to Cleveland,
1: rookie. You look skinny. Have a hot dog. You need-
0: Hargrove tried to ignore all this as he tossed warm-up grounders to his infielders. The hot dogs and peanuts weren't much of a threat, but the pennies whizzing by his ears were a bit disconcerting. Just as Jenkins concluded his eighth and final warm-up, a pair of fans who looked and moved enough alike to be father and son bounded onto the field and dashed into fair territory in right field. The pair stopped, dropped their pants, bent over and with the uniformity of synchronized swimmers rotated 360 degrees, making sure the entire stadium equally shared in the glories of their double-moon salute before scampering back into the stands. In tribute, fans tossed hot dogs, peanuts, pennies, firecrackers, and rolls of toilet paper onto the field. Ossie Blanco advanced from the on-deck circle to the plate to start the bottom of the fifth. Blanco, 28, from Venezuela, started the year with a career batting average of 197, but he had only played in about 30 games way back in 1970. Then he had been in the minors again all the way until 1974, and had only been up about 30 times with the Indians, hitting 167. Despite his batting average, Ossie Blanco ripped the single into left field and stood triumphantly on first base. John Adams pounded away on his bass drum in the bleachers. The trajectory of Blanco's career is interesting. Filling in at first base, he played three more games with the Indians, then was cut on June 9th, and never played again in the major leagues. But as Shrek said, there's layers to these things. Though his major league career was but a blip, Blanco played 17 years in the minors, including stints in Mexico and Venezuela, amassing over 1,500 career hits and a batting average near 290. As a result, Blanco was inducted into the Venezuelan Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in 2015. Next up was Dave Duncan, who swung hard at a curveball and sent the ball soaring high and deep into center field. Back, 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 back went Tovar. Based on the trajectory, Duncan's blast wasn't going to make it out of the park or even to the wall, but fans desperately willed it otherwise. Come on, come on. Get out of here! You never know. A fateful wind shear might scoop the ball up and gently plop it down into the bleachers for a home run or Tovar might suddenly collapse from diphtheria or jaundice and the ball could fall untouched for a triple. The world might stop spinning just long enough for gravity to collapse and the ball could float out of the stadium. At the last moment it looked as though the ball might make it to the fence after all, before it collapsed like a dead pigeon into Tovar's awaiting glove on the warning track. With Blanco still on first with one out in the bottom of the fifth, Indians shortstop Frank Duffy was the next hope. Duffy was mostly known for his defensive skills. He led American League shortstops in fielding percentage in 1973 and was off to a fine start defensively in 74, but he was only hitting 193 as he came to the plate. Jenkins made Duffy look bad and struck him out on three pitches. Such things often seem inevitable after the fact. When the action goes in favor of the odds, it seems as though it couldn't have gone any other way. But those odds only reflect the accumulated actions of the past and don't predict the present or the future, as with Ossie Blanco, who had just singled off a future Hall of Fame pitcher despite very little Major League experience and a 167 batting average. With Blanco still on first and two outs, John Lowenstein tapped a listless little nubber to Jenkins on the mound, who threw him out to end the bottom of the fifth. With Dick Bosman having limited the Rangers to one out on two hits in two innings of work, Indians manager Ken Aspermani rolled the dice and sent the veteran out again to pitch the top of the sixth, with the score still 3-1 in favor of the Rangers. Alex Johnson, 0-2, stood in the batter's box to begin the sixth inning. Bosman made Aspermani look good by quickly retiring Johnson on a pop to second and by inducing Jeff Burrows to ground out, shortstop to first. Tom Grieve, who already had two homers in the game, stepped into the batter's box and singled sharply to left. The next batter, Wiley veteran Jim Fergosi, doubled to left, sending Grieve to third. Toby Hera, who had doubled in the fourth, then lofted a deep fly into the corner and right that eluded Charlie Spikes for a triple, scoring both Grieve and Fergosi, sending the Indians deep into a 5-1 hole. Next time on Heading for Home, a warrior is felled. The field is festooned and fans run wild. Herb score, please for sanity. The Indians show pluck and the Rangers are bombed out of their bullpen. Heading for Home is written and executive produced by Eric and Don Olson sound design and original music by richard ingraham performed by eric olson buck mcwilliams alex olson mars fargo tom fulton nathan welsh marty o'sullivan don olson donna westfall brian westfall and richard ingraham Turkish history takes a deep dive into stranger than fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In season one, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Ten Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a Ten Cent Beer Night Odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the Ten Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans awash in cheap beer streaked chanted obscenities pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting texas rangers and their own home team indians this is that story there was aggression in the air before the game even started she shrieked and disappeared beneath him with surprising agility her beefy husband hopped up over the back of his seat onto the row behind him, yanked the thin guy up off his wife, and tossed him at the vendor, sending even more beer the flying. The Indians got the- behind yeah. early, and the mood was explosive. Designated hitter Grieve settled in the batter's box and promptly set a majestic blast over the center field fence for a home run. As Grieve crossed home plate for the first run of the game, a single profound explosion thundered in the stands on the first base side behind the Indians' dugout. A streaker took to the base paths. A completely naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base, stealing the thunder from Greaves' second homer. Though chippy, the crowd was also creative and expressive. There was a family of mooners. A pair of fans bounded onto the field and dashed into fair territory in right field. The pair stopped, dropped their pants, bent over, and with the uniformity of synchronized swimmers rotated 360 degrees, making sure the entire stadium equally shared in the glories of their double moon salute. As the tribe fell into a five-to-one hole and the alcohol took hold, stadium announcer Bob Kiefer pled for sanity.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the Indians, players, and management request that you stop growing things. And stop running onto the field. Thank you for your cooperation.
0: The field looked like a perverse circus with fans bounding onto it from all corners of the stadium. Some doing somersaults and cartwheels. Some dancing. Loons in left field were still trying to pull the padding off the wall as the grounds crew, brooms in hand, poked and shoot at them like they were a pack of raccoons rooting through the trash.
1: Act! The beer ran out. Attention, guests. All concession stands have run out of beer. Boots.
0: Just kidding. However,
1: beer may still be obtained from the trucks on the far side of the outfield fence.
0: Despite the drunken streaker's destruction and explosions, the Indians were on the verge of a huge comeback. He reached back and spun a curve up to the plate. Ashby connected late off the end of the bat And sent a squipper toward Larry Brown at third Who charged and grabbed it cleanly But had no place to go with the throw Crosby dashed to third Torres to second And young Ashby stood on first with what The young man moved like a major... spy in a cartoon Crouching low, stepping high Tiptoeing his way across the field toward Burrow The dam burst
1: Oh, this is an absolute tragedy Absolute tragedy I've been in this business for over 20 years and I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? The Indians team and management request that you clear the field of play immediately. Thank you.
0: Don't miss heading for home. Season one of Freakish History The bizarre true tale of the 10 cent beer night riot at Cleveland Stadium in 1974.